Good morning. If you've got a Bible with you, hard copy or digital, you want to open it up to Luke chapter 4. We're going to pick up in verse 16 where we left off last week. And as you get yourself situated, I have two kind of quick announcements. The first is, um, you'll notice there at your seats and when you came in, there, were no, there are no little communion cups. That's because we want to, because we're doing communion a little less frequently right now in order to be COVID responsible to the best of our ability. Um, we wanted to be able to take communion with as much of our church family as possible. And given the weather and stuff, we weren't sure if you know, people wouldn't feel comfortable driving. So we're just going to move that to next week. So um, if you're at home and you're watching with us and you had some communion elements ready, we'll use those next week. If you're here, they'll be available for you when you come in um, next Sunday. The second is on Wednesday, February 17th, which is not this Wednesday, but next Wednesday. Um, that is the official start of what on the church calendar we call Lent. Um, if you're unfamiliar with what Lent is, Lent is um, a roughly 40-day stretch. It's about six and a half weeks that runs up to Easter. And what it is that we're doing during Lent is that we are identifying ourselves with Jesus's um, fasting and self-denial in the wilderness, which Scott Hickox just preached on last week, while also focusing our hearts in preparation for Easter and Jesus's resurrection and his work on the cross, his resurrection. And so um, Lent is like the chunk of time where the church historically has made some space to fast and then to focus on Christ and what he would do on the cross. And during Advent, before Christmas, we wanted to actually take some time as a church family and formally observe Advent. We want to do the same thing during Lent, and we're going to do that in a specific way. And so as a church over the last couple of months, as a staff, we've been working to put together this guide. Um, this is the proof copy that the printer sent us, but your copies are being printed and will be available to pick up next Sunday. And rather than just having everyone kind of pick their own thing and fast from it for all of Lent. Instead, what we've decided to do is go week by week. And so this guide will take us through fasting from a different thing every week during the season of Lent. And then the thing about fasting is that it's not just that we remove something from our lives and then kind of show our toughness by just gritting our way through not having that thing anymore. It's that we take something out of our life that we might then allow ourselves the space and the reminder to be focused on God and on Christ in a particular way. So this will, for each week of Lent, as a church family, we'll take something out, we'll fast, but it also will provide what we're focusing on in that thing's absence. And these will be available for you, one for each person, not just one for each family. So one for each adult in every family, as well as every student. Um, so sixth grade and up, this Every, uh, a middle school, high school student, college student can certainly do this along with us. We printed enough, hopefully, for everyone to be able to have one of those. So you'll be able to pick them up next Sunday here um, in the lobby if you come and attend. If you're watching with us online and you want to pick one of these up because we have enough for you too, then they'll be available in our office on Monday the 15th and Tuesday the 16th. So you can come and pick them up there. That way we're all ready to start on Wednesday the 17th. Sound good? 
The other piece of this is that like we did during Advent, there'll be a Sunday component to this too. So on Sundays, we'll kind of like group back together, rally back around and prepare ourselves for what the coming week will be. So we're excited about this. Um, Look forward to doing that as a church family, not something that in my recollection here at LCF we've ever done collectively before. And so hope that you'll take part in that with us. These will be available for you next week. Um, You got your Bible, you're ready to go. We're gonna be Luke chapter 4, 16 down to 30. Let's pray and then we'll jump in. God, thanks for this morning, the opportunity to come and to worship you. Um, Lord, that song we just sang and the bridge of that song, I pray, is... Uh, the, the true longing of our hearts, God, that you would take our lives and let them be all for you and for your glory. The things that we say, the motivations that exist in our hearts, the things that we do and the way that we approach all of life's varied situations, God, I pray that what permeates all of that for us is a humble submissiveness to you and a willingness to just allow you to take our lives and all of our seasons and situations and circumstances, Lord, and just use them as you would for your glory. God, I pray that this morning as we look at our passage in Luke, God, that you would show us a little bit more of what that submission looks like, what it entails, what it means to submit ourselves to the King, Jesus, and allow him to be Lord and Savior and then to live humbly out of that submission, God, empowered by the Holy Spirit and empowered by your grace. Lord, would you show us more of that this morning? And as a result, God, uh, would our lives, not just our voices, sing glory to God, glory to God forever. We pray this in Jesus' matchless name, amen. Um, You'll often hear in various segments of society, like sectors of our lives, in fact, in pretty much each of those areas that someone will come along at some point, an influencer, a prominent speaker, a prominent thinker in that realm, and they'll say, you know what, the key to a successful career, the key to a successful marriage, the key to successful parenting is this one thing. If you just understood this one thing, then all would go well in fill in the blank area of your life. And we gravitate toward that stuff because yes, if you could give me like the one clue to figure out marriage, if you could give me the one clue before I was married to figure out how to approach dating and my own singleness and those kinds of things, or how to approach career, like, please give that to me. And they'll say things like, you know what you really need to be satisfied in life is to to truly understand yourself. Just get a deeper understanding of yourself and know yourself really well, and then you'll be able to navigate life well. Or in your job, that what you really need to do is master kind of your own habits and your own personality and then put that into play at your career and you'll find ultimate satisfaction there in your job. Or maybe in a broader sense, you'll hear people say, the key to your happiness in life is just getting the right mindset. Once you get the right mindset, then everything else will take care of itself. And while none of those in and of themselves are bad and they all have their place, none of those is ultimate. I would say that none of them is ultimate, certainly in an eternal sense, but none of them is ultimate in an earthly, temporal, moment-by-moment sense either. And that's because I would say, and I think our text today is going to display this for us, that the most important understanding in life is a right understanding of Jesus. And I don't say that as like, well, he's the pastor and he has to say that. I truly, truly believe 
that understanding yourself is wonderful. But if you don't understand yourself in relation to Jesus in the gospel, you're missing a giant component of what it is to be human. Understanding your kind of habits and personality as it relates to work are great, but if you don't understand work as a general concept in relation to God and his kingdom in the way that he is working in the world, you're missing a huge component. It's great to understand your mindset, but scripture says that we're to set our minds on things above not on things below. And so if we don't understand Jesus and his kingdom and set our minds in that place, it doesn't matter how you kind of self-motivate, you're missing a massive component of what it is to have the right mindset in life. We're gonna see this. When you misunderstand Jesus, it leads to certain things. And a right understanding of Jesus leads individual followers of Jesus and the church in a certain direction. I wanna show us that this morning. Let me give a real quick update on where we are in Luke. If you're just kind of jumping in with us, uh, this is a good time because we're at the shift of a section. If you've been tracking along with us over the last few months, then we're hitting the first big transition in the gospel of Luke. From Luke 1.1 to Luke 4.15 was all about the presentation of the Savior. Luke is introducing to us who Jesus is. Then you arrive in 4.16 and it goes all the way to almost the end of chapter nine. That's like the early part of Jesus's ministry. It all takes place in Galilee up north before he starts heading down south to Jerusalem. And in that section, which is gonna be blue here as we go through, Luke is displaying for us the power of this savior, the power of Jesus, his power over the natural world and his power over the spiritual world, his power in teaching, his power in his actions, the power of his presence, the power of his ministry, his power to heal, his power to forgive sin. All of that happens within really the context of Luke displaying for you Jesus interacting with people. And typically it's in the reaction of those who are relating to Jesus that we learn something about Christ. The same is going to be true for us this morning. As we go through this early part of Jesus's ministry, I want to give two important frameworks for reading the Gospels and Luke specifically, but any of the four. The first is this. When you're reading through the Gospels, it can be challenging, but one of the things that we're supposed to see is the fullness of Jesus's divinity and the fullness of his humanity. At times, I think it's easy for us to lapse into thinking on one side or the other. Like for you, it might be really easy to think about the divinity of Jesus, that he is completely God and that he came to satisfy the wrath of God towards sin and that's who Jesus was, he was divine. For others, it's very easy to think about Jesus's humanity. Like for you, you know, you want like the Jesus is my homeboy t-shirt because that is what you resonate with. It's easy for you to see Jesus in his grace and in his mercy and his compassion as they intersect with individuals. The full picture of Jesus is both of those things. My hope is to really push us in this regard. We can't lose sight of the fact that Jesus is fully divine, that he came to absorb the just, holy, righteous consequences of our sin. But we also cannot allow ourselves to miss the fact that at the very core of who Jesus is, the very essence of his heart towards sinful humanity was that he was compelled toward us in that way. That's who Jesus is. That when he sees sinful, broken, hurting people, his heart moves toward them, compels him toward them in compassion. 
oftentimes I think it's easy for us to think about God the Father and to think about the Father as wrath and anger and judgment. And then we think of God the Son and we think of love and grace and mercy and compassion as if Jesus were like a dam that were up in heaven holding back all of the anger and judgment and wrath of God the Father. The truth is, as scripture tells us, that when you look at Jesus, you're seeing the fullness of God's deity pleased to dwell in this man. That means that when you see Jesus, you see the heart of the Father. And his heart is just, and his heart is righteous and holy, but it is also mercy and grace and compassion. And Jesus is the place to see both of those things in their perfection. Dane Ortland says it this way, the dominant note left ringing in our ears after reading the gospels, the most vivid and arresting element of the portrait is the way the Holy Son of God moves toward, touches, heals, embraces, and forgives those who least deserve it and yet truly desire it. That's the good news of the gospel. That we, broken, sinful, needy, that those aspects of who we are would be the very qualifications whereby Jesus would say, my heart is compelled toward them and ultimately toward the cross. Thomas Goodwin says it this way, Christ is love covered over in flesh. That's number one. As we read through Jesus' ministry, see the fullness of his divinity and the fullness of his humanity. And then number two, One of the challenges in reading any narrative portion of scripture, whether it be one of the gospel accounts or the book of Acts or any of the narrative parts of the Old Testament is figuring out how to position ourselves correctly in the story so that we know how to apply it right. Oftentimes, our flesh wants to read a story and put ourselves in the spot of the hero. Like David and Goliath, I must be David. I have to be Moses. I must be Elijah or Elisha get to the gospels, and then that becomes, here's an account of Jesus doing something. I must be Jesus. As you read the gospels, just remind yourself over and over and over again, you're not Jesus. More than likely, you're the one who needs healing. You're the confused, hesitant disciple. You're the reluctant follower of Jesus being called to radical, life-transforming, sin-confronting discipleship. You're somewhere in the crowd, and Jesus is Jesus correctly applying what we see Jesus doing in the Gospels is built on rightly positioning ourselves within these accounts. Jared C. Wilson, who's an author, he was a pastor for a long time in the Northeast, now he's a speaker. He says it this way, he tells like a really brief story where one Sunday after a service, um, he kind of stepped down and there was someone new to the congregation who came up to introduce himself and the person said, so you're the preacher? And Jared Wilson said, yes. And the person said, so you're the guy with all the answers? And Jared Wilson said, I'm the guy who points to that guy. That's the right positioning when we read these stories about Jesus. On our best days at, in our best moments, we're the people that point to Jesus. Often, we're the one who needs healing. We're the confused, hesitant one. We're the reluctant one. And Jesus' heart is compelled toward us in that. I'm going to read Luke Luke 4, 16 down to 30. If you've got a Bible there with you, I'm going to invite you to continue looking at it, but stand up and you'll see why we're going to do this this way in a minute. Let's stand as we read God's word. This is Luke chapter 4, beginning in verse 16. 
He came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as usual, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him and unrolling the scroll, he found the place where it was written. The spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set the oppressed are set free the oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fixed on him. He began by saying to them, today as you listen, this scripture has been fulfilled. They were all speaking well of him and were amazed by the gracious words that came from his mouth. Yet they said, isn't this Joseph's son? Then he said to them, no doubt you will quote this proverb to me, doctor, heal yourself. What we've heard that took place in Capernaum, do here in your hometown also. He also said, truly I tell you, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. But I say to you, there were certainly many widows in Israel in Elijah's days, when the sky was shut up for three years and six months, while a great famine came over all the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them except a widow at Zarephath in Sidon. And in the prophet Elisha's time, there were many in Israel who had leprosy, and yet not one of them was cleansed except Naaman the Syrian. When they heard this, everyone in the synagogue was enraged. They got up, drove him out of town, and brought him to the edge of the hill that their town was built on, intending to hurl him over the cliff. But he passed right through the crowd and went on his way. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. What in the world just happened there? That's the question. What is Jesus doing? Why does it end this particular way? Remember, the most important understanding in life is a right understanding of Jesus. And if you remember where we've come up to this point, Luke has been introducing to us who this Savior is. And he's shown us various introductions that Jesus gets to different people that surround him. So an angel introduces Jesus to Mary. An angel introduces Jesus to Zechariah and Simeon. And then they prophesy, they prophesy out of that. The Holy Spirit illuminates uh, for John the Baptist, who Jesus is. And then while he's out in the wilderness, John the Baptist is introducing Jesus. The father booms from heaven and introduces Jesus as his beloved son while Jesus is being baptized. Luke gives us a genealogy that shows who Jesus is. And even last week, in the passage that Scott worked through at the beginning of Luke chapter four, Satan understands who Jesus is. Three different times, Satan says, if you are the son of God, Satan knows He's just twisting that. He's making it a question, not because it is a question, but to try to call it into question. Now see what Luke does. In the very first ministry account of Jesus's life, in his own words, Jesus introduces himself as Messiah, the Savior. He walks into a synagogue in Nazareth, and it's not the first time that he's done ministry. We know that because verse 15 says he was teaching in their synagogues, being praised by everyone. We also know that's the case because in verse 23, when Jesus you know, reads what they're thinking there in the room, he affirms that they've seen him doing ministry in Capernaum, and they want him to do it here also. But it's the first thing that Luke gives us. Jesus in his hometown walks into what would have been just a standard day at the synagogue. They would have worshipped via the Psalms. That was their hymnal. Someone would have stood up and read from both uh, the law and the prophets in the Old Testament. And everyone would have stood in recognition of like the supreme value and worth of God's word. Then they would have sat. The rabbi would have sat down and delivered a sermon and then they would have closed in prayer. And typically those prayers were like written out, kind of fixed prayers that they used week in and week out. And that would have been the time 
there at the synagogue. And so Jesus walks into his hometown, goes into the synagogue, and he is going to lead them through this process. And he opens up the scroll of Isaiah. No chapters and verses written in there at this time. So we just, so familiar with God's word. Picture thumbing through like your favorite book and just knowing the exact place where you want to go. And so he goes to Isaiah 61, verses one and two. That's what you have there in Luke 4, 18 and 19. That passage from Isaiah is a portion of the prophet Isaiah who he's looking forward to the coming Messiah. And there's so much like Old Testament Hebrew Jewish background here that we just don't carry into this, but to give the quick summary, that would have been for a Jewish person, Isaiah prophesying about the coming Messiah. And that coming Messiah is all wrapped up in the idea of the kingdom of God for the Jewish people. That God made a covenant with Abraham, that he was going to bless all the nations through Abraham's line. And that this kingdom was going to sweep over all the nations of the earth. And they would be the means by which God would bring that blessing to all peoples. And it's just been yuck for like years and years and years. And now here's Isaiah saying, here's how you're gonna know when this king of the kingdom has arrived. And so Jesus opens up and he reads that passage. And look at what he does. The spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. And he has sent me. Who has he just identified himself as? He's the Messiah. He's the one that Isaiah was looking forward to. He's the one that Israel has been awaiting. In his own words, Jesus says, the king of the kingdom has arrived. And it's me. And I've come with a message. Look back down at it again. Three different times. Preach good news to the poor. Proclaim release to the captives. Proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So there's clearly a message in this that's gonna set the tone for the message that Jesus delivers throughout all of his ministry. But there's also an actual ministry. Good news to the poor. Release to the captives. Recovery of sight to the blind or health to the sick. Set free the oppressed. That is the model of Jesus's physical ministry that you're gonna read about throughout the rest of Luke. Jesus stands up before his hometown and he says, I am this king, I come with this message and here's the evidence of it. He's just introduced himself. Then he sits down and as if reading that wasn't enough, everybody kind of leans in and he gives them a one sentence sermon. Today in your hearing, this has been fulfilled. One sentence and everybody said, We're going home early for lunch. That's Jesus in his own words. This is who he is and this is what he's about to do. It's all wrapped up in the kingdom of God. And in fact, the rest of the gospel of Luke is gonna talk about the kingdom of God a lot. And so we're gonna have to interact with this idea a bunch. So I wanna set the stage on what the Bible means when it talks about the kingdom of God because it's easy to get this confused. Oftentimes when we hear people talk about the kingdom of God, we think they must be talking about like, the people. So Israel in the Old Testament, maybe the church in the New Testament. Maybe we think it's talking about a place. So Canaan, the promised land in the Old Testament, or like the church, like physical spot where the church is located in the New Testament times. Maybe we would think that the kingdom is about really a set of laws. So it would be like, you know, God delivered what the kingdom is on Mount Sinai there when he gave the law. All of those are incomplete. 
The kingdom of God is the absolute sovereign rule and reign of God over all things spiritual and physical for all of time. That is what the kingdom of God is. The kingdom of God did not begin when God chose a people, the Israelites. The kingdom of God did not begin when he gave the law at Mount Sinai. The kingdom of God did not begin when the Israelites went into the land of Canaan. God's rule and reign has existed from eternity past. It's always existed. The kingdom of God did not come into being when the church was born there in Acts 2. It did not come into being when uh, Jesus returned. The kingdom of God has always existed and it will always exist because it's the rule and reign of God. So what is happening here? Jesus is saying the king has come and the kingdom is breaking in now. That's what happens in the church. When you become a follower of Jesus, God's rule and God's reign breaks into your life. And all that that kingdom requires, it sounds simple, but it's really hard, is our submission. Like that's our role in the kingdom of God. We submit to his rule and to his reign. So Jesus looks at his hometown people and he says, I'm the king. Here's the message. Here's the evidence of that message and the ministry that you're going to see. This has been fulfilled before you today and it turns into a lynch mob. They want to throw him off a cliff. Why? Because they've got a misunderstanding. Watch the crowd's reaction as we go through this. Verse 20. He then rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. He's just read from Isaiah. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fixed on him. It's like they've gone from being kind of disinterested, this is just another day at the synagogue, to like leaning forward in their chair. You just read a key passage, Jesus. What are you gonna say about it? And they're interested. But being interested in Jesus is not the point. They're intrigued. They wanna know what he has to say. It's a good starting point. But being interested in Jesus doesn't mean you have a right understanding of who this man Jesus is. And the same is true today. Plenty of people are interested in Jesus, kind of thinking maybe has some good stuff to say, are willing to listen to it. But it's not enough to be interested in Jesus. That falls woefully short of what the king of the kingdom is looking for. There's a huge difference between interest and submission. He gives them the one sentence sermon there. Today, as you listen, this scripture has been fulfilled. Then look at verse 22. They were all speaking well of him and were amazed by the gracious words that came from his mouth. They're not only interested, they're also willing to be impressed. But being impressed by Jesus isn't the point. What he has to say is amazing and astonishing and they're impressed by it, but that misses the point. It falls woefully short of the submission that the king of the kingdom deserves to just be impressed by him. Today, that looks like people who say, well, I think Jesus is a great moral example. Or I think Jesus is a wonderful teacher that we can live from. Those are great starting points. Like if that's what gets you kind of in the door to hear about Jesus and the Holy Spirit uses that to open up your heart to the reality of this king and submission to him, then that's fantastic. But if you just walk away interested and impressed, you've come up woefully short. That's not a complete understanding of who Jesus is. So they're amazed by the gracious words that came from his mouth. This is still in verse 22. Yet they said, isn't this Joseph's son? They're familiar with Jesus. But being familiar with Jesus is also not the point. Imagine being the people in this 
little town here. In fact, I can relate to this very strongly because I came to faith in this church and some of my very best friends and their families still go to this church. And so when I stepped into this role and I stood up here to preach for the very first time and I looked over at like my friend's dad who knew me before I knew Jesus and is now having to listen to me preach. Like I looked over there, right? So Jesus looks out at this crowd and he sees, you know, the parents of the people that he grew up playing with. And they're thinking, aren't, don't you just help out in like your dad's carpentry shop? Didn't my kids grow up playing with you? Weren't you the one we left behind in Jerusalem that one time? And we got like a day or so away before anybody realized that you weren't running around with the camels. And so we had to go back and pick you up. They know some stuff about Jesus. But just being familiar with Jesus doesn't mean you have a right understanding about who he really is. And that might be the greatest danger in the church today is that especially in middle America, we just kind of swim in a familiarity with Jesus. We kind of know some of the stories. We know the general idea. We could tell you some of what's in the Bible and yet some of that familiarity actually clouds our ability to rightly understand who Jesus is and what submission to him truly looks like. It goes on. Then he said to them, and this is something that Luke shows Jesus doing frequently, and it's some combination of sovereignly knowing what people are thinking and just being incredibly perceptive and able to read the room. But Jesus says to them, no doubt you will quote this proverb to me. So he says, here's what you're thinking. Doctor, heal yourself. What you've heard that took place in Capernaum, what we've heard that took place in Capernaum, do in your hometown also. they're like generally inclined to think that Jesus is significant. Like, but that's not enough. We heard you did some stuff over there in Capernaum. Do it here. Let us see it. There's like an edge of skepticism there. We heard about it. Let's see it here. But there's also a willingness to be open to the fact that like this guy might be important. But just kind of thinking that Jesus is significant also would fall woefully short of what it would mean to submit to the kingdom, to submit to the king. This whole doctor heal yourself idea, medicine was a skeptical uh, kind of business back in this day. So you would go to the doctor and they would say, take this and you'll feel better. And you'd look at the doctor and say, you take it first. Right, like that, Jesus says, that's what you're thinking about me right now. You want to see it for yourself. You're willing to acknowledge that maybe there's something significant going on here, but you need further proof. Again, that's a great starting point in trying to come to understand who Jesus is. And it could be the means by which the Holy Spirit opens your heart and your mind and your eyes to the truth of who he is. But you can't just finish in that place. It's not enough to just say, well, I spent my life thinking Jesus meant something. That's not submitting to the king. And then things really go sideways here when Jesus challenges them with two illustrations from the Old Testament, two prominent prophets, Elijah and Elisha. And what he challenges them with is the fact that despite the fact that there were widows who needed food during the famine, Elijah went to a Gentile rather than an Israelite. And then despite the fact that there were people in Israel who had leprosy, Elijah, Elisha is sent to a Syrian, a Gentile, rather than an Israelite. Jesus challenges them because being selfishly possessive of Jesus is not the point. And this is something that I think the church is 
uh, in danger of too. That we just think like what Jesus means starts and stops with me. Like what he did on the cross, that was about me only. So then I receive forgiveness from Jesus and that's it. Like that was the end point. I was the goal and he got me. Jesus looks at his hometown people and he says, this kingdom is for you, but not just for you. It's for everyone. That's something Luke brings out over and over again in his gospel. And that so enrages them that verse 28 happens. When they heard this, everyone in the synagogue was enraged. They got up, drove him out of town, and brought him to the edge of the hill that their town was built on, intending to hurl him over the cliff. Ultimately, they misunderstand who Jesus is. They're interested and impressed. They're familiar with him. They're inclined to believe that he's significant. They're possessive of him because this king has to be just for Israel. And Jesus flies in the face of that and then they've got contempt for him. And the same thing happens today when we misunderstand Jesus. We end up with a kind of anger or a contempt for him. Jesus' first rejection takes place in his hometown. And where does that rejection end? They want to throw him off of a cliff. Jesus is going to ultimately be be rejected by his own people, not just from Nazareth, but Jewish leaders. The Israelite people, they're going to reject him. And where's that going to end? On the cross. And for all of the miracles that Jesus does that we're going to see throughout the gospel of Luke, one of the most impressive because it points so clearly to the cross is what happens here. They shoo him on out of town, right? You get the impression that he was brought up out of town. They took him to the edge of the hill that the town was built on. They're ready to throw him over. Jesus peeks over the cliff and then just turns around and casually walks back through the crowd. Like, it's not time yet. You're not gonna throw me off of there. Satan just told me I could jump off and angels would catch me. You're not tossing me off of this cliff and ultimately he's gonna go to the cross, be buried in a tomb and what's he gonna do? He's gonna stand up and walk out. He's rejected ultimately because he was misunderstood. That's the reason why the Israelite leaders are going to reject him. That's the reason why his hometown rejects him and oftentimes today, that's the reason that he gets rejected by people. It's a misunderstanding of who Jesus is. And even for those of us who have submitted to Jesus as king of the kingdom, we can still harbor misunderstandings about Jesus that lead to a kind of anger. There's a whole lot of anger about a whole host of matters within the American church today. And I can't help but think to myself, maybe maybe the issue is that in some form or facet, we've not understood Jesus correctly. Maybe we were just interested or impressed. And then he gave a teaching or there was some aspect of what it means to follow him that we didn't like and we became angry. Maybe we didn't read closely enough or press deeply enough into scripture. Maybe we've been selfishly possessive as if what Jesus ultimately came for was predominantly the church and forget everybody else out there. And then you see Jesus flying in the face of that, moving toward broken people and all of a sudden you're angry about it and you want to throw him off the cliff like the people of his hometown. Or maybe we're too familiar with the idea of Jesus to really understand the very heart, message, mandate, and ministry of Jesus. The most important understanding in life is a right understanding of Jesus. It's most important for your eternal security. And if you've not ever seen that clearly, 
seeing Jesus as Savior and Messiah moving toward you in your brokenness, that he might take your sin upon himself and wash you clean? The most important understanding for you this morning is that he is that Savior. If you're walking with Jesus, a right understanding of him is most important for your heart's and your soul's earthly joy. It's most important for the health of your relationships. A right understanding of Jesus and submitting to the king of the kingdom is most important for how you approach work and marriage and parenting and food, exercise, money, dating, friendships, politics, civil engagement, in all manner of earthly life. Why? Because once you submit to the kingdom, it breaks into every facet of your life. There's no point of submission to Jesus that his kingdom does not touch. His rule and reign overtakes everything inside of you. And our flesh wants to stand against that. And yet when we see the truth of who this king is and we bring our lives into submission to his rule and his reign, it impacts all of who we are and all of how we interact in the world. And that's why it's so important that the church rightly understand Jesus. The most important understanding in the life of the church is a right understanding of Jesus. Specifically in this particular passage, it has to do with where do we position ourselves in this and what does it mean for us? We're not the Savior. We're not Jesus in this, but we're the people that point to Jesus. We're not the King, but we're the people who point to the King. And Jesus has made it clear what that ministry looks like. There's a message and there's a physical ministry that accompanies it. When the church misunderstands the balance and the presence of both of those aspects of Jesus' life, we err in how we engage in a broken world. And I would say we run the risk of presenting an incomplete picture of Jesus and God and the kingdom to the world. So there are two sides of this typically. And if you just look back up at verses 18 and 19, there are those who would read through that and they would see good news to the poor, release to the captives, sight to the blind, and freedom to the oppressed. And they would say that those are only spiritual realities. That's it. Jesus came for the spiritually blind, the spiritually sick, the spiritually oppressed, the spiritually captive, or the spiritually held imprisoned. And all that means for us is that we preach the kingdom and we kind of wash our hands of the brokenness because all of this is spiritual and then we're able to kind of put our head on our pillows at night and feel good about ourselves. Is it true that Jesus came with a message that's good news for the poor, release to the spiritually captive, our recovery of sight for the spiritually blind, recovery of health for the spiritually sick, freedom for the spiritually oppressed. Absolutely, amen, that is the good news of the gospel. Is that complete though? There are some who would say that the things that Jesus talks about in regard to his ministry here are entirely physical. You get two sides of a spectrum here. That Jesus really just came and what it means as followers of Jesus is that we're mostly concerned with the physically poor, those physically held captive, those physically oppressed, those physically sick or blind. And we engage in the physical realities of that socially and civically. And then by osmosis, the world will see the kingdom of God and they'll understand who Jesus is and the king is. That's incomplete. The mandate of the kingdom of God for followers of Jesus must involve both the message and the ministry. The biblical picture is always 100% both. For Jesus, the ministry 
provided evidence to the message. And the message provided the ultimate good of the ministry. And the same is true for the church today. A right understanding of Jesus leads to a right carrying out of Jesus's mandate. We're the ones who point to the king. We point to the king by proclaiming the message of salvation for the spiritually sick, captive, oppressed, and poor. But living in submission to the kingdom means that we meet brokenness with the righteousness of the kingdom which means that there would be good news for the physically poor, the physically sick, the physically oppressed, and the physically captive. And in case you're like disinclined to believe me from either side of that issue, if you've got your Bible there in front of you, I'm gonna move quickly, but just scan with me. In this section of Luke alone, the early part of Jesus's ministry, in chapter four, verses 31 to 44, Jesus is teaching and the people are astonished. He casts out a demon, heals Peter's mother, heals other sick and demon-possessed individuals and then pronounces that he must go and leave that town because he needs to evangelize other towns too. Physical, spiritual. In chapter five, verses 12 to 16, there's a man with leprosy. Word spreads, or Jesus heals a man with leprosy. Word spreads and soon people start coming from all over in order to hear Jesus and be healed. In Luke chapter five, verses 17 to 25, there's a paralyzed man who's brought in before Jesus as he's teaching in the middle of a very large crowd. Jesus pronounces forgiveness of the man's sins and tells him to get up, take his mat and go home, spiritual and physical. Luke 6, 18, people are coming to be healed and to hear, hear Jesus's message, physical and spiritual. Luke 7, 22 to 28, Jesus quotes a passage in order to clarify his identity to John the Baptist and John the Baptist's disciples. What does he say? He literally requotes the evidence from this passage in order to say, here is how you can be certain that I am the savior. The blind see, the hungry are fed, the poor are no longer the captive are released. Luke 8, 26 to 39, Jesus heals a demon-possessed man who's wandering out in a cemetery and has been chained up there for quite some time. He then sends that man to be an evangelist about, quote, all that God has done for him, physical, spiritual. Luke 8, 44 to 48, Jesus heals a bleeding woman and then pronounces her salvation. Luke 9, 1 to 6, Jesus commands the disciples to go and preach about the kingdom of God and he gives them power and authority to do the same ministry that he's been doing. Luke 9, verse 11, Jesus is healing all those who need or want to be healed while speaking to the crowds about the kingdom of God. And that is just in this section. You could carry on from 951 until Jesus is crucified and you would find the same rhythm. Message, ministry, spiritual, physical. So what is our mandate as followers of Jesus? It is to live in submission to the rule and reign of God, proclaiming who the king is and carrying on his ministry to the sick, the oppressed, the hungry, the thirsty, the captive, and the poor. Our verbal proclamation of the gospel of Jesus must be met with a radical commitment to stand for and work toward the things that Jesus stood for and worked for. And our willingness to engage with the sin and brokenness in the world and meet it with the righteousness of Jesus must also carry with it a radical commitment to the, ver or the verbal proclamation of who Jesus is. If we only meet people's physical needs, we haven't helped them ultimately. But if we only address their ultimate spiritual needs, we display a gospel that's kind of devoid of power. We display a kingdom that has no power to overcome sin in the world. It must be both. It's right for a person who sick, poverty-stricken, oppressed, held captive. If I were to look at someone trapped in slave, 
our sex slavery and say to them, here's the gospel, and then leave them in their sex slavery, they would look at me like, what power does this have? I mean, thank you, but help me. Jesus is moved into those areas of brokenness with a message of the kingdom as king and with a reality of the kingdom's ability to overcome sin and darkness. And that is what it is to be a follower of Jesus. We go into these places empowered by the Holy Spirit, pointing at the king, and we say, this is what it looks like when the kingdom rules and the kingdom reigns, and here's the king. And we're unashamed in both of those. Far too often, we've misunderstood the king and his kingdom, and we've turned this into like two different sides, and we hold contempt for one another. One side looks at the other and says, you only care about social justice. That side looks at the other side and says, you don't have any compassion for people. And Jesus stands in the middle and says, both, both. They need to know about a savior and their spiritual blindness and poverty and sickness and oppression and captivity. And they need to see the power of the kingdom of God breaking in against brokenness in the world. And that comes through my people. Jesus came to overcome sin spiritually. He's triumphed over it on the cross and we must help people understand that. And physically, his ministry displayed what it looks like for the kingdom of God to work against the effects of brokenness in the world. And we must be people whose lives are transformed by the grace of God and submitted to the kingdom of God in a broken world. And so what does that actually look like tangibly? When we talk about good news for the poor, What does it actually look like to not only address the spiritually poor, but the physically poor? There are wonderful ministries in Kansas City that do this. Kansas City, or the City Union Mission, is a fantastic place that has a heart of compassion for people trapped in physical poverty and yet does not shy away from the truth of their spiritual poverty and their need for a savior. Love, Inc. does the same thing right here in the Northland addressing the tangible reality of people's physical poverty while also holding out the beauty of the love and love of a savior who can meet them in their spiritual poverty. This is why the Salvation Army was formed. It's why we partner with Team World Vision. It's what the benevolence ministry of this church does. Those are all fantastic opportunities to see the real hurt that exists in a physical world and run toward it because the kingdom of God compels us while also pointing back to the king and saying, here's why I'm here. What does it look like to bring release to the captive? The physically captive. William Wilberforce in England was a follower of Jesus who was a pioneer in ending the slave trade in England. In today's world, the A21 campaign started by Christine Kane is a wonderful organization that works not only to free people from sex slavery and sex trafficking, but also to bring them the good news that they can be released from the captivity of their sin. International Justice Mission does the same thing with human trafficking in various forms all around the world. What about sight to the blind or health to the sick? You may or may not know that the modern like model of hospitals was brought about by Christians who saw sick people in the world and said, we're compelled by compassion to move toward that evidence of brokenness and bring you comfort and healing and the good news that there is one who can overcome your spiritual sickness. That's who Jesus is. When the plague was running rampant through Europe and people were leaving densely populated areas, you know who stayed behind? Christians. 
You know why? Because they wanted to comfort the sick and they wanted to share with them the truth of Jesus Christ. There are ministries today that exist to, like Doctors Without Borders, to go overseas, bring literal sight to people or literal health to people while also proclaiming to them the gospel of Jesus Christ. What does it look like to set free the oppressed? What's the difference between the oppressed and the captive? The captive is someone who's physically like held in bondage. The oppressed would be those who, whether because of some system that exists in the world or some set of circumstances, they're not able to flourish in life. For us in modern terms, that would be like addiction that would keep you from flourishing. There are organizations that work to free people from addiction, like Hellfighters or Freedom KC, that offers them freedom from that and tells them that ultimate freedom is found in Jesus Christ. We partner with a ministry called Refuge KC that works with refugees right here in the Kansas City metro area. What is the oppression that a refugee faces? They don't know the language. They can't get a job. It's hard to get settled in. It's not easy to flourish when you're a refugee in a strange place. What does Refuge KC do? Comes alongside them, offers a vast array of programs and opportunities whereby local churches can engage with those individuals, help them flourish in this place, and tell them about ultimate freedom found in Jesus Christ. Setting free the oppressed is why LCF partners with Liberty Women's Clinic, that we might be able to help a baby and a mother and a family flourish without sacrificing either one. That we might be able to uphold the sanctity of life in the baby in the womb and the sanctity of life in that mother and set them free to flourish. That that child might be born and that that mother and father or whoever found themselves in this situation of unexpected pregnancy where they were considering abortion can see there's a way to flourish with that child. That's what Liberty Women's Clinic does. And they do it all while pointing those individuals toward the truth of the gospel. It's 100% both. When we submit ourselves to the king of the kingdom, we give our lives to allowing the rule and reign of God to direct who we are as individuals. When we see sin and brokenness in the world that would stand opposed to God's rule and reign, we move toward that and we point at the king. And we allow God's righteousness to shine in the world because we as his followers are submitted to his rule and his reign. And so the question becomes, well, what is LCF involved in? And it's a fantastic question that I'm sure someone is going to ask me via email or something like that. And we as a church can do certain things with certain programs to a certain extent, but if you come to me and you ask me what is LCF involved in, I'm lovingly going to look back at you and say, you tell me. LCF is the sum of its people. And no one individual has to take care of healing all the areas of brokenness that exist in our world. It's the hands and feet of Jesus in different parts of his body. He is emboldened and impassioned each of us in different ways and his spirit lights fire in us in different ways. And so my question would be, is there an area of brokenness in, that exists in our world that your heart gravitates toward? Then with the compassion and the grace and the mercy of Jesus, you move toward that and you point people to the king. That's what LCF is involved in. We can be bold in our proclamation. We must be bold in our proclamation and we can be bold in calling sin, sin and allowing the rule and reign of God to overflow against that brokenness. That's the king. 
And that's his kingdom. And in his own words, he says, the spirit of the Lord is on me, anointed me to preach good news to the poor, sent me to proclaim release to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set free the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And as the church, we're the person, person that points to that guy. And we do so with a message and we do so with ministry. Amen? Amen. We're gonna close in song here. I'm gonna pray because the one starting place here for us is prayer. That God, by his grace and by his Holy Spirit, would illuminate for us maybe areas where we've misunderstood this and then by his grace, move us into greater submission. So let's pray and then we'll sing. God, thank you for this morning, for your word. God, thank you for Jesus. And the fact that he has set us free. We who were spiritually poor, spiritually held captive, spiritually blind and sick, spiritually oppressed in his compassion, Jesus moved toward us. He absorbed the wrath that our sin deserved and in his grace and in his mercy, he has set us free from that. God, would we never shy away from the bold proclamation of the truth that Jesus and Jesus alone is the means toward healing all of those things. God, would you just move by your spirit inside of us to be a church of people out of which the gospel just tumbles from our hearts and from our lips. God, we be people who are radically committed to pointing to the king verbally, vocally, and unashamedly. But God, would you also work by your spirit and your grace inside of us to display to us the brokenness that exists in our world. God, help us to not be immune to it, not to be desensitized. God, to not be compassionate toward it. Lord, but instead, filled with your Holy Spirit, would we move toward those places of brokenness and would we point back at our King? God, would your rule and your reign show what it looks like when your righteousness overcomes sin? And as we stand in those places of brokenness, would we unashamedly point back at the King? God, would we be a people who, like we sang when we opened our service, have submitted to you and say, take our lives and let them be all for you and for your glory. Take our lives, Lord. Let them be yours, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And stand up, let's sing. Not a lot to add to that, huh? <clears throat> um, one, of, one of the most amazing parts of this story is that after being ready to throw him off the cliff, when Jesus walks away, uh, he doesn't do so with like any condemning. <laughs> It's not like he's angry, right? We will spend the entirety of our lives seeking to submit to the kingdom and understand Jesus correctly. And in all the ways that we mess that up, he is always there to meet us in that place, full of grace, full of compassion, full of mercy. And so church, as we stumble forward in all of this, know that there is a good kind, compassionate Savior who meets you with his grace in that, dusts you off when you stumble, picks you back up, and then keeps walking forward with you. Amen? Amen. Thanks for being here this morning. It's snowing again. Please be careful driving home. We'll see you again soon.